Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again to Kubrick's Universe. We continue now with our special presentation of Nathan Abrams' event, 2001 Beyond 50, which was held at Bangor University on June 16th, 2018, in commemoration of a half century of Kubrick's masterpiece. In this, part four, we are super psyched to bring you a very cool panel discussion from those who actually worked on 2001. Yes, I'm, I'm not, not kidding. Like, panelists, people who actually worked on it. You heard that right. I sang it horribly, but you heard it right. And these panelists include Ms. Joy Cuff, who actually built the moon sets just based on ideas by Kubrick, as well as designer David Peterson, stills photographer Keith Hampshire, makeup and special effects artist Colin Arthur, Kubrick assistant Tony Freewin, and Kubrick's brother-in-law and longtime producer Jan Harlan. So, the first panelist in this section is Joy Cuff. Joy Cuff trained in fine art at Kingston School of Art and has worked and is still working as a freelance artist, designer, and graphic designer from when she left Kingston in 1964. Her first commercial role was as a sculptor on the classic TV series Thunderbirds. Joy sculpted the puppet heads of the baddies in plasticine, but her most memorable project was working closely with Stanley Kubrick on 2001 A Space Odyssey designing and constructing the moonscapes. While on the set of 2001, she met the matte painting artist Bob Cuff, who had been employed with special effects cameraman John Mackey to produce the iconic shot of the astronauts entering the pit on the moon where humans have discovered, or rediscovered, the inert monolith. These days, Joy remains a volunteer at the Kubrick Archive at the London College of Communication, which she's been doing for the past 11 years and counting. But who's counting? I was working at MGM at the time. Not, um, no, this is what I was going to do at MGM. I was working at Mer Merton Park Studios, and I needed another job. And they, on the list, which you were at, I was in the union, so you looked down the lists. And um, I've got, because I've got a scrapbook here, and in my scrapbook, I've kept just bits. And I, and I wrote to MGM because they wanted a, a model maker for a, a landscapes. Not moonscapes, landscapes, they said. So I wrote in about September. I don't, I don't have my copy because you didn't have things. You wrote it by hand, you know. And on Christmas Eve, I got the reply. And it said... Um, glasses out. What, what year was that? 1965. 65. Christmas 65. 20th December 65. Having viewed your letter to uh, John Hoseley. John Hoseley. John Hoseley. <coughs> yeah. 
dated 21st of October. Yep. Yeah, oh, it's dated 21st of October. It appears conceivable that you may have an aptitude for animation cell work and or sculptural landscapes. Please contact me if you are desirous of this interview. And I've never forgotten the um, telephone number, which is Elstree 2000. That, that was the M MGM number, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. <coughs> so I rang up, and um, then it took ages. They said, yes, all right, we'll give you an interview. And uh, in the meantime, I, wrote, I, I went to work on um, Fahrenheit 451, which didn't take very long. But then the 18th of Feb, this letter is to confirm your engagement. Because I went round and I said, yes, I'd like to do, you know, I, I could do the, um, the modelling. So I, I did sculpture and painting. That's what I was. Um, and I worked on Thunderbirds. But I'd already left Thunderbirds, so it wasn't as I was poached. Some people say I was, but I wasn't. Um, and my engagement in gate, um, commenced on Monday the 21st of February, 1966. And your salary will be £16 per week. And my dad went, what? <laughs> £16 a week was a fortune. For, uh, but it's only for two weeks because you had to prove, didn't you, that you could actually do the job. <laughs> because who, you know, nobody built the moon sets before. So. And it turned out it was moon sets. And uh, then I started um, the following week. Monday morning arrived. You started at 8 o'clock. And you worked right through till 6. And... Um, I met Stan Stanley also, he always met, didn't he, everybody that yeah. worked for him. And um, he, he came through the, the door onto the stage, and there were the big stages. Um, I was on, I was on five. Yes. Five, and that's right, and the wheel was on six, wasn't it? And um, not one person came through. And of course, in those days, you don't have um, masses of, photographs of people everywhere, all on television and Instagram and whatever, you know, Facebook, and you know exactly what people look like. And I wasn't quite sure, because three people walked in, all American, all the same size, all practically the same age, and all wearing navy blue, dressed basically the same, you know, to kind of casually, but the one in the middle was Stanley, because he put his hand out first and said, hi. So that's how I met him. And um, I can't remember what the conversation was because just, I mean, you're a bit kind of it's your you know first first day of a new job, um, and you wanted to impress, so that that was it. And um, I worked for I worked alongside somebody called, well I won't tell you his name because I, I don't think he's probably around now. He's probably very old. The guy I first came, and I want to say something about it because it was rather funny, because he didn't like. Lots of um, old blokes don't like females coming along and working alongside them, especially in 1966. And um, this day, we, we, we dusted down the set, and Wally Beavers, who was the director who worked out of Shepparton, he said um, uh, the other guy had gone for a dental appointment. And, he, and Wally Beavers said to me, I want, I want this set ready by 2 o'clock, because we, we, must, we must come and film, you see. So um, I did. I, I I worked through the morning, worked worked through my dinner hour, like like you do. I mean, I've always I've always done things like that anyway. And it was all ready. And then along comes John, and he says, he says, what are you trying to do? Work yourself out of a job? I don't know whether he meant you're not going to do that on my watch, or, or 
or the old-fashioned way that if you work too quickly, you know you're going to work yourself out of a job, which I thought was a very strange attitude for somebody. I don't think he really knew what the film industry was all about. Do you remember him? I do. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, very well. Hmm? Very well, John Huxley. Yeah. John Rose. No, no, not the art director. No, the, the guy who was there, he was a, he was an illustrator. He was a very good illustrator. And he was, he was a bit out of his depth doing three-dimensional. But anyway, that, that, that was my first week. And then a couple of weeks later, Bob Cuff came in, who was an amazing mat artist, and he worked out of Shepperton with John, John Mackey, and he'd worked there for since the early 50s under um, Wally Vivas. And he came along to build the iconic shot of the pit, um, which had been shot, the live action had been shot at Shepperton just before Christmas. Because um, H stage at Shepperton is the biggest stage in Europe. And that's how they got the space to kind of do it, you know, all the, all the surround. Um, and I really, I learned my, 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 the craft of um, split-screen map painting, map models, whatever you want to call it, and from, from him then. It was, it was very good to do it, because what we did, how he did it, and how Stanley wanted it done, because he, he, was, he was a stickler for everything that had to be really good quality. It was kept in the film. The live, the live action from Shepperton Studios was shot and kept in the film, in, in the can, sorry, in the can. So it wasn't... It wasn't Explo- developed. Wasn't it was exposed. Wasn't no, printed. no, it wasn't printed. Um, and what? Developed. Yes, yes, developed. And what they do when they're shooting something which is going to have a model around the around the outside, because a model. When they're shooting, they have a matte box on the front of the camera, and the, these actually are 65 mil cameras. I've actually got 65 mil film here and 35 because 65 is about the, well, obviously it's 65 millimeters, isn't it? That they're, they're big and the cameras are huge. Um, you have to make sure the camera is absolutely steady, um, and you have steady tests. You know, you, you you have a graph in front of it and you run the camera and make sure it's it doesn't have any jiggle on it because and you you do the steady test on both things, the model and the live action. Anyway, but the live action is done, kept in the cold, put it in the fridge or whatever, um, and then we were doing the the model, um, which then was shot on a Sunday so that nothing else in the studios was being shot. So there was no... No, well, and also for, for the lights, any of the lights, you know, dimmed or whatever. Um, anyway. Um, and it was 10 minutes um, in rushes. So if it, 24 frames a second is the live action and a matte camera runs two frames a second. I worked it out that it would be, because I can't remember how long we actually, because by the time you set it up and you, and you do dip tests and you make sure that the exposure is right on both, on both the model and, and, the, and the live action, it, it's, it's, over two, it's over two hours of, of shot that, they, that it takes you, to, 10 minutes, takes over two hours, just, just, just over two hours to do. Um, I was talking about, the, 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 that's right, you have to put a mat you mat out the bit on the live action that you're going to have the model. And then when you do the model, you do the same thing on the front of the you have a matte box, which has the black little bit, which is then the live action. 
so that and this the bit round the side is the crucial join and that's why you have to kind of if you're going to do it in with original film it's easier when you dupe it because you can just see it you know and, and then paint it around but but you have what you call dip tests so somebody rushes off to the dark room and just takes about two feet of film and then you can see whether it's white or black whether you have to fill it in or take it away um and it worked. And on the month, I mean, the awful thing is when you finish, you know, you open the gate and make sure that there's no hair in the gate or, it's, or it, hasn't, it hasn't been a camera jam, but it all worked fine. And we went to Russia's the next day and it was pretty, it's pretty spectacular. It's really lovely when you see something working like that. You know, you've, you've seen all the, the bits all joined together. Um, but that's basically my introduction, <laughs> which is quite spectacular. Next, we're going to hear from David Peterson. David Peterson got his start at the Newport College of Art, but then moved on to London University in 1965. And in 1966, he was recruited to work on 2001, A Space Odyssey. After that, he moved on to multiple different jobs, including artistic director and artist in residence for many different projects around Wales in the United Kingdom, including being the chairman and founding member of the Association of Artists and Designers in Wales. He also went on to start up his own art, craft, and design business in 1982 called My Furfa Peterson Productions. Gosh, I hope I didn't butcher that. I think I did. My Furfa, M-Y- F-Y-R-F-A, my Furfa Peterson Productions. At any rate, in more recent years, Mr. Peterson has been a guest speaker and a consultant for numerous associations and events. We're going to hear from him now. You've got, got my first letter of uh, confirmation up there. and My salary was £25 a week. <laughs> that, I'll tell you why. That's because you're a male. It, it, absolutely. I, uh, I, was, uh, I, I no. Mine was 14. The <laughs> Should we change the subject? <laughs> no, because all the blokes that worked after, well, even for me, somebody came in after me, he got twice what I got. Um, Should we go back? <laughs> well, yeah, um, I was riding on a, a bus to, I'd just finished college and university and I needed a job. And I thought, well, I go and offer my services to Henry Moore, the sculptor. And uh, I was on a bus and I was reading a paper, I think it was the Telegraph, and in the adverts it said, sculptors wanted apply Hawk Films, Boreham Wood. So I actually got off the bus and I was with a friend and we walked up, we went up to the reception and the reception said, have you got a, a union card? An A-T-T-I? And I said, no. And I said, don't say that in the advert. So what have you come for? And I showed him the advert, and he rang up, and he said, there's a bloke at the door here. Anyway, somebody came down with a clipboard and said, can you work with plastic? Can you work with wood? Can you work with uh, um, perspex? I'd never heard of perspex. 
Yes. <laughs> when can you start? I suppose we can start now. Well, turn up tomorrow. And we turned up. And that's how I got the job. And I have to tell you that it really inspired... I wasn't... I don't think any of us were aware that it was going to be such an incredible film. I certainly wasn't. I'd never had experience of filmmaking. But it inspired me to get involved with props, um, model making. I've been a sculptor all my life and I've made over 80 films. And it, it comes from that moment when the guy said, um, okay, you got the job. I think they'd run out of model makers, hadn't they? Or they just couldn't get enough because you know, there were so many having to work there. And it was quite extraordinary that the experience that I got there, I worked nights. Um, whilst on the set, we, we had um, the Dirty Dozen with Hank Marvin, uh, Lee Marvin and um, Clint Eastwood. And uh, somebody knocked on the door, can you make two dozen hand grenades by tonight? <laughs> <laughs> that looked like hand grenades, etc., etc. And they were shooting Casino Royale as well. I seem to remember having coffee with Geraldine Chaplin, which left a big impression on me. <laughs> um, Anyway, that, that's how I got in, in, into it, and it was, it was a bit of, it was not so much an accident. If it was an accident, it was a very happy one. Next up, we're going to hear from Keith Hampshire. Keith Hampshire is a stills photographer. He spent over two years working alongside Kubrick on 2001, helping him on many special visual effects, all of which still stand up to today's modern CGI. He has since worked on a wide range of films, including, but not limited to, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith from 2005, The Mummy from 1999, and Goldeneye from 1995, which is my favorite Pierce Brosnan as James Bond film, so sue me. In all seriousness, he was, in 2013, the European Vice President of the Society of Motion Picture Still Photographers, but he still continues to embrace new technology and was one of the first unit photographers to adapt to the digital age, which we all now take for granted. He's gone on to develop his own company that produces 360-degree virtual movie sets. Here's Mr. Hampshire now speaking about his experience as a still photographer on 2001. I suppose it's my turn now. I, um, first of all, I... We could skip you. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, I have had a checkered career up until the point of 2001, which I won't go into, but I was a child actor. Um, but um, I, during that time, I met a photographer called Johnny Jay. And Johnny Jay was the actual stills photographer during the making of 2001, during the main production. And I was out of work and I was walking along Oxford Street um, thinking, well, I've got to have a job by the time I get to the end of Oxford Street, otherwise I might go and throw myself under a train. And I was sort of a bit, I was very depressed. Anyway, John phoned and he said, um, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm not doing anything at the moment. He, know, he knew that I was uh, gone into the 60s scene as, a, as a, an assistant to various photographers in London. So he knew I was sort of trained in that. And uh, he said, well, I'm doing this little job at um, MGM. I said, oh, really, what's that? 
He said, oh, well, are you interested? I said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, there's a little project called 2001, a space odyssey. And before the phone was down, I was at MGM. And I was assisting John for a few months, and then main unit finished. Um, John, one of the stories which is really actually quite amusing is that on the set of 2001, Stanley was always very, uh, because of his interest in being, and his history of being a photographer for Look Magazine and various other um, situations, he was always interested in the still photographers and he loved still photography. So if he had a camera on your neck, no matter what he was doing, he'd come to you in mid-conversation and say, what you got on there, 50? Uh, or is it, uh, what's the stop of that? What film are you using? Forget all the actors and everything, he'd have a conversation. Well, <clears throat> this distraction actually was a bit too much. He didn't really want to hear sound clips on it. It was before the days of having blimps. And a blimp is a thing, obviously, you have a camera to stop so you don't hear the click. And you can shoot pictures during sound text and all that. So they decided it'd be quite a good idea to have build Johnny a, um, like a telephone box with AA glass, optical glass in the front. And the idea was uh, uh, Keith will look after you, John, and you know, we'll put you in there and be there during the tapes and you can take the pictures. No one's going to hear you. And just not like that and Keith will push you around and whatever. <laughs> so we're on the stage and um, you know, Stanley has a reputation of um, doing a few more than one, two, three, four, sort of tapes. And uh, I was just there sort of twiddling my thumbs and John was in his position inside this box taking pictures, I thought. And so I looked around and the glass is totally all steamed up. <laughs> totally all steamed up. You couldn't see in there at all. And uh, they'd cut and I'd suddenly opened the door and John went, I was so out of breath. So I said to Stanley, you know, John really has a problem, he can't breathe he's, you know, in the time that he's in this box. Um, so Stanley said, oh gee, uh, well, why don't we just fix an air cylinder on the top and um, we'll do it feed him some fresh air and that way. So the next day on the set, this was all rigged up. John went in his box, I pushed it into the right position, uh, turned the air on. What's that noise? What's that noise? It's Johnny breathing. <laughs> so that was the end of the uh, lap blip. Anyway, that's just a nice little story. So uh, during this sort of period of time, uh, I was shooting large format photography. That was what I did. And we had some large plates to shoot on the pod bay and things like that. So I'd got this 5.4 Sino camera ready and uh, I was carrying it onto the stage. And Stanley was right behind me. And he said, uh, oh gee, uh, what you got in there? And I said, 5.4 Sino, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to shoot these Wally Vivas, what's these 5.4 shots of the pod bay? So then I started to have good communication with Stanley. I really got on with him exceedingly well. And I was on that. <clears throat> After John left, I um, shot 10 loads of 10 and 5.4s of <coughs> all the little spacecraft, the Orion and the Moon bus, and uh, all those, those uh, uh, space stations and things, and Discovery. And I shot them. Um, they were quite difficult because 
Uh, and discovery, for example, was, well, I don't know how long it was. Do you remember how long discovery 30 was? 30 metres. 30 metres long. And I had to shoot a 10-8 of that. And um, Stanley wanted it lit just with one light. There's only one sun, there's only one light. So in all the pictures that you see, everything is lit just with one light. And um, th there is no way to get any film. He didn't want any film. He wanted it all to be natural. And that caused huge problems because you still needed to see in the shadow areas and things. And this meant having, going through the process of trying to find combinations of different films and different um, processes where you could get the maximum benefit of trying to get something in those shadow details. And I've got books at home of all the experiments I did of all the different types of films. And when I was starting to do this stuff, I had to do all this photography for Stanley, um, and he put me in that position. Uh, I then had um, three dark rooms, and at one stage I had four people working for me. Now I was like, I started, I was just 19 years old. At this stage I was about 20 years old, and this was a union situation in those days and you could never work in the industry unless you had a union ticket and you couldn't have a union ticket unless you'd worked in the industry so it's a catch-22 and most people who got on the industry got in the industry through a post room or through a process like that so there was never any way of getting proper way of getting in the industry and i was it was my job i was resented by the outside a lot there was a proper lab at mgm stills lab and um, there are a lot of problems there of me having my own laboratory and people working for me. And some of the people working for me had actually already worked for a stills for brain studios in the lab there. And this little 19, 20 year old upstart was interviewing people who were printing professionals and working in the studios. And you know, this all got back to the unions. And it became a little bit of a problem. But anyway, Stanley managed to solve that and sort that, sort that out. Um, but going back to photographing all these little objects and all the tests that I did in the, in the, in the labs, um, I found that you know, with a 10 camera, uh, you, uh, we had a whole stage where our, um, all these models were, and you had the one light, which was invariably something like a 10K, which is as far back in the corner of the stage as I could get it. So the light would carry that far, so you wouldn't have any gradient to any gradient of the light. And then I used to shut, shut the stage up and then just walk away for the weekend because my stop was like 132 on a 10 camera. And I'd done all the movements that I could to carry on the depth of focus. But I still didn't know whether it sort of worked. Um, um, but it, it did all prove to work out quite well. But one of the films that became amazingly successful, of all the ones that I tested, was funnily enough a Polaroid film. And at that stage, Polaroid had just brought out a film called PN55. And it was a Polaroid film with a negative. And it, I found that film, was the, the grade of that film was far superior to 10.8. So I was able then to start shooting 5.4. And I'd carry much greater depth of focus because I'm shooting in a smaller format. And, you know, it became a little bit better. But the great thing about that film is the gradation on it, the gamma on it was so incredible that uh, I found I was carrying shadow detail that had never sort of been able to be carried before. 
and Stanley was just over the moon about all of this. Um, so the other thing that happened to me a little bit later on, because Stanley knew that I was a kid actor, and um, we were talking about Moonraker and doing the sequence, and we were in the theatre one day, and uh, Stanley said to me, gee, Keith, what do you do? Can you play an ape? Um, <laughs> so, uh, that's one thousand. Yes, Stanley, of course, Stanley. I uh, he said, Keith, be an ape. And we were like in this theatre at the GM, and there's just Stanley, and I like, Ronnie Bear was there or something, like oh, maybe Ronnie Ray Lovejoy. So suddenly I'm confronted with this situation where I've got to, like, be an ape. <laughs> well, I, I, I just made a mess of it, or whatever, like that. Um, anyway, there were lots of discussions about all of this and how they were going to film it. And this goes up to Stanley says, Well, Keith, um, I think we'll start uh, doing some um, prosthetics on you, making you as an ape. So now I've gone to Stuart Freeborn and uh, I have face masks taken. And then I embarrass him body masks taken. <laughs> and then I'm told, um, your eyes are all wrong. What do you mean your eyes are wrong? You've got to have contact lenses. Okay. I know it's a great place. Go to Belgrade here. There's this great eye specialist. So I go to this eye specialist in Belgrade, uh, sit back in the chair. Now, you know Clockwork Orange, don't you? You've seen that. <laughs> right. Sit back in the chair, sit back like that. These things are put in your eye and they hold your eye wide open. You cannot move, not at all. There's no anesthetic in that. What are you doing? Saying, we've got to make a cast of your eye. Not sure. We've got to make these lenses. Okay. So, uh, anyway, they put this funnel in, sitting back like that. And it's just like a funnel. And they start pouring this cold cream. It starts coming down towards you. You start trying. It's just terrifying. And then it suddenly hits your eye. And it's really cold and hot. And anyway, it's sitting there and you've got this funnel out like that. You can't blink from doing that. Then he's got to get it out. Once it's set. So Sonny goes, all right, we're going to get it out now. Pulls it out, you wonder where you're at with your eyeballs. <laughs> Luckily, it wasn't. Said, Great, okay. Sit down, got to do the other one. <laughs> two eyes are different. So, anyway, <laughs> I have the two. So now it's showtime. So I go to Chur, the body thing's been done, the mask's been done, the eyes are in, and, uh, well, you know. We've got to reckon now what it's going to be like in uh, South Africa, because we're still going to be photographed in South Africa. Okay, Stanley. So uh, he says, uh, what do you reckon it would be like about 120 degrees in it? So I said, I'm sweating now, Tony. He said, uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. Geordie, Geordie was an electrician. He said, I'll get Geordie. Yeah. He said, I'll get Geordie to set up um, some 20 pairs on a, on a, like a, a run. There's going to be 420Ks there and 420Ks there. And you're to run up and down here for 20 minutes and see what it's like. The temperature was like 130 degrees. So I'm now, the true guinea pig now, running up and down this, this catwalk and it's you know, really getting wild. 
Anyway, that's that sort of story. And then it, it transpired that um, Stanley decided either I was a better photographer than I was an actor, or um, he wanted me in the end to go out to South Africa to shoot all the doorman plates. So I went out there. And I was out there for about three months under canvas in the Namib Desert. Um, and it was the most, the whole thing was the most incredible experience of my life. I mean, think about me, I fell in love twice on 2001. On 2001. I fell in love with my wife, who I met, who's still with me, and with the film industry. Our next panelist is Colin Hart Arthur, who was raised in the south of England and at the age of only 17 began an intensive six-year course training in the fine art of sculpture, first at the Guildford School of Art and then followed by his final studies at the City and Guilds in London. Later, while working at Madame Tussauds Waxworks in London, he was invited to assist on 2001. This led to over 20 years of continuous occupation in the film industry worldwide, working in a wide variety of disciplines, makeup, set decoration, and special effects. Here's Mr. Arthur sharing his experiences working on 2001. Where do I begin? Um, I start with sculpture, and I kind of finish with sculpture. I... Um, was at art school in Guildford for about four years and went on to the City and Guilds School of Art because in the, 90, uh, in, the si- in the 60s, in the early 60s, the wheels fell off Guildford for art school and there was a uh, student sit-in. And uh, the course that I was doing just kind of stopped. So I went on to the City of Guilds, Guilds School of Art in, um, Kensington, in Kennington. I was very lucky with the professor that I had. He was a man called Michael Rosello, who used to do uh, portraiture for Madame Tussauds. And he was my principal professor at Guildford Art School. Um, We got on very well together, and we used to do moulding together. If the students would do a piece of work for uh, a project for the school, but they didn't know how to do the moulding. And Michael Rosello is a... Italian, a trained opera singer, and in the evenings he'd say, "Come on, Colin, we've got to do some do some moulding." And he would sing arias while we were throwing plaster at clay sculptures to to uh, to make the moulds of them. Which is a, a process where you put push brass shim, you just stuff brass about this thick, cut it into strips, and you put it into a clay model into a form that when you've got the plaster on it, you can take it to pieces. You put soft soap on the inside and you fill it with plaster and open it. Um, I I went on to uh, Kennington School of Art and unbeknown to me, but Michael was uh, talking with Madame Tussauds, the management of Madame Tussauds, because they were going to... uh, Bernard Tussauds, the great-grandson of Madame Tussauds, his children didn't want to carry on and be uh, work, work in, in the Madame Tussauds workshops. So they wanted somebody to come in and take over from Bernard Tussauds. And uh, 
Michael recommended me. I go up to Madame Tussauds. I was being paid 18 pounds a month, not a week, 18 pounds a month to work at <coughs> Madame Tussauds. I was there for about 18 months, maybe a little bit more, and the film industry used to make contact with us. And because of the position I was in, uh, in the management of the, management not so much as a technician who, a sculptor, a young sculptor who knew new modern materials. And so, um, <laughs> um, sorry, I've gone, I've gone blank for a moment. Um, So, working at Madame Tussauds, the film industry used to make contact with us, and in, in my position, I could actually cooperate with them. And there was we, we were doing various things with the BBC. I seem to remember doing early life casts of faces for the first Doctor Who. Um, I can't even remember, but I remember its name. Um, and uh, one time, Stanley uh, um, Stuart Freeborn, um, special effects makeup man, who, if you look in the internet and you see the films he's done, he should he should really have six or seven Osc uh, Oscars to his name. He's an absolutely amazing man. He made contact with Madame Tussauds because he was realizing that Stanley needed 32 mar uh, monkey suits, and there weren't enough technicians of even approaching the kind of skills in the makeup department, and unions insisted that makeup department uh, would, would do everything you do with a mask, and they didn't have the skills. So he comes to Madame Tussauds and said, you do life casts. Well, sometimes we used to take life casts of hands, but I kept mum. Kept mom. And um, <clears throat> in the different conversations, our, after the principal photography, there was a kind of lull in in the uh, makeup department in that Stuart realized that he was going to have to prepare for the monkey sequence. And he had enough time to come to Madame Tussauds, chat with me, and then I took him down to my parents' studio in uh, Guildford in Surrey. And some one way or another, my mum got involved sculpting the first uh, visual for an ape mask. We've got a drawing somewhere of it, or we don't know whether we've got a photograph of it here. And um, during various conversations, Stuart said, well, would you like to come and help us do some life casting? And the story about an outsider being able to go and work for MGM studio is a rather amusing, amusing one. Years before, another famous special effects makeup man called Charlie Parker had, had a laboratory there. Um, and we, in actual fact, the, the laboratory was where we did the live casting of you. Yeah. And he had, was a, um, a, a guy who was always working on location. And his makeup chair, or for doing special effects makeup, was a collapsible dentist chair from the military, so it was made in aluminium. So uh, he was doing a, a, re, a clear out of his, of his workshop, and 
there was kind of there was kind of mobile skips that you, on wheels that you would have in MGM studios, and there was tons of molds that he was throwing out on the plasterers union guy comes up what's all, this, what's all this plaster what's all this plaster and they heard that Stuart uh, that uh, Charlie Parker was going to make a life cast of an actor so oh we've got to do that well there was a laboratory man helping uh, Charlie Parker Charlie was there and they said all right come and do a life cast and he made all various technical orders for moles for teeth and moles for the head and the artist is there. Charlie's calming the artist down and said, well, no, no problems. These gentlemen are going to do your life cast. And what happened was that two plasterer's laborers come in, a carpenter and a carpenter's laborer with a length of six by four timber and a roll of rope. And they take the dental chair and in front of the artist, pieces because you did the same kind of thing. <laughs> they saw the piece of timber and they put the timber upright here, tied on the chair with a rope and a cross. And Stanley says, uh, not Stanley, Charlie says, well, to his assistant, I'm going down to the bar. You give me a ring when this is done. So in front of the poor artist, there's buckets and spades and sh shovels. It looks like something for the beach. And as he goes out, the artist is there with his arms with a beam through in the back, like that. And he's like that. <laughs> well, they went through a plaster moulding process. There's been so many accidents. You hear about them, so many accidents in plasters. And you, you know, the, the, the principal sculptor for Ray Harryhausen whom a lot of you probably have heard the name, the principal sculptor who knows about making molds, allowed a plasterer to make a mold of her hand, couldn't open the mold, and she lost her finger because the, mold, the plaster heated up so much and it ripped her finger off. And there's been many other states. Well, anyway, they start the, the process of making the mold, not adequate separation at the back. If you let plaster get very thick, it gets very hot. There's a trick. You can work with plaster. If I was, um, if some modern moulding materials weren't available, you can do things in plaster. But anyway, anyway, the lab assistant says, Charlie, you better come up here. Well, what's, what's the problem? What's the problem? The actor, uh, the mould's on him, and it's got some kind of separation here. I don't know what they used. And the whole thing's getting very hot. And the artist is has got up with a chair attached. <laughs> and he's moving around like this, smashing the laboratory to pieces, because all in the walls of the laboratory, there were cupboards with ge gelatine, all of the things for making blood and things like that. And Charlie comes in the door and finds this situation. He calms the actor down, and the trick then is to take a chisel, a nice thick blunt chisel, and have the constant the confidence to hit, put it like that and hit it very hard with a hammer. That it explains a lot. Well, no, that's it. <laughs> and but the thing goes open. From then on, a plasterer in MGM was never allowed to touch an artist. So now Stuart has the situation where he can't use the plasterer's department. And so he's looking around for, for people to make molds 
and he came to Madame Tussauds. And it goes on from there. I, well, thank goodness for that, for, for that accident in the plaster department. I ended up on eight weeks sabbatical leave from, from uh, Madame Tussauds, and uh, 20 months later, I was using the same plastics that we used to make the masks, put a mask on <coughs> Keith, use the same plastics for making flying models for the Battle of Britain, 400 flying models, and then on in the film industry. Thank you, Stanley, for have, to having such a fantastic project, and to Stuart and Charlie, who helped get me into the industry. Next up is Tony Freewin. Tony Freewin is a writer, but he was also personal assistant to Stanley Kubrick from 1965 to 1968, all throughout the production of 2001, A Space Odyssey. And then Mr. Freewin rejoined Kubrick as his personal assistant from 1979 until Kubrick's passing in 1999. These days, Mr. Freewin represents the Stanley Kubrick estate. He's also been the writer of the 2005 film Color Me Kubrick, as well as the documentary What Is Out There, which was a segment on the Blu-ray release of 2001 back in 2007. And he's also been the associate producer of the indispensable documentary Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures. I'd like to say a few brief words about how I met Stanley. Um, and, uh, there are also some illustrative of what I'm pleased to say. But one small footnote uh, you should have mentioned that um, Charles Parker did the makeup and a lot of the special effects on John Houston's Moby Dick, who was made out of boring wood. Has anyone here ever seen the Houston Moby Dick? Yeah. I mean, it's the best Moby Dick. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful bit of filmmaking. But it was all made out of um, boring wood. Barracks, you know, um, 
And this was reflected in, in the peculiar setup of the film industry. Uh, the men were in something called NACI, which was the National Association of Theatrical and Kinematograph Employees. And the officer class were in the ACTT. I, I cannot for the life of me remember what that stands for. Uh, 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 and there was a sort of third minor um, union, uh, the ETU. Anyone? Yeah, anyone ever heard of the ETU? <coughs> the guy up in the top left hand corner has heard of it. Um, uh, ETU, I mean, it sounds like something out of um, Stalinist Russia, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> I'm knock at your door at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, so anyway, there, there was this really rigid class thing in, in the British film industry. Um, you know, men against officers and you know, the ETUs screwing about in the background. Um, well, Stanley came into MGM Studios as, as what was known as a renter. No, no, MGM were financing the film. He, he was what was known as a renter. You know, he was going to come in and purchase facilities of the studio. And I, I've, I've got to say, I mean, MGM was probably certainly the best film um, studios in England and probably one of the best in Europe. Um, it was built in the late 30s, I mean, with no expense spared. And uh, it was our late, late great friend, uh, Brian Forbes, who decided to close it um, in, the, um, in the early 70s. And he kept it open, the, the other studio down the, the way that everybody thought was just an awful studio, that's ABPC, which is, uh, it's got under all sorts of names. I mean, you can date somebody by how they refer to the uh, studios. You know, I call it the ABPC, which is late like 50s. So I think, uh, what is it now? Elstree Studios. Elstree Studios, you know, Big Brother and all that sort of nonsense. And, um, it's a much smaller studio. Yeah, I mean, they sold off the back lot, and they sold off this, and they sold off that. Um, so anyway, um, he was in jail. My, my father had, um, had a big argument with Kim Ernest and thought, I'm screw the job, and left um, MGM started back on Monday working as a kind of factotum for, for Stanley. Um, this was uh, about June, July of 1965. Anyway, my father said to me, um, this was we're starting out the pre-production of this new film um, and, and they need a run on it, you know, a gopher. And um, I thought, oh God, you know, British film industry. And you know, I said something crass like, you know, well, if it was Jean-Luc Godard, I might be interested. And uh, anyway, my father was on and on, and he'd come down and, and you know, meet the guy, and you know, I mean, they need a run. Um, and I, um, at that time, was um, was working in an ice cream factory in Bournemouth in the deep freeze. <laughs> and, um, but there was a promise of middle management. <laughs> well, it, 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 yeah, the company went bust about two years after I left. Anyway, so you know, my father went on and on and on, and I thought, oh, Christ, you know, in the end, the only way I'm going to uh, get him off my back is to actually go down to the studio and go through all the motions of meeting this guy. You know, I said to him one day, um, I, said, I said, who is this guy? What, what is the film? And he said, well, it, I'm not sure what the title is, there are several titles, but the director is a guy called Stanley Kubrick. 
which rang a bell, because in those days I was very active in the campaign of Euclid and Selman and the Committee 100. And um, it's funny enough, Dr. Strangelove was the one English language film we all got to see. And um, there was a tremendous amount of um, anti-Americanism around at that time. Um, uh, I mean, America to us was, coming back to what I said earlier, uh, was, you know, Eisenhower and Doris Day and, you know, Senator Joe McCarthy. You know, this was uh, not a progressive country at all. Um, you know, whereas we all listen to jazz, you know, Charlie Parker, not the makeup artist, you know, the outer sex artist, and Dizzy Gillespie, people like that. And that, that, that was a kind of parallel, you know, uh, other realm of America. You know, that, that had nothing to do with Eisenhower and Doris Day and Rock Hudson. And it rather surprised us and, you know, made us sort of think twice about. Um, our ideas about what America was. I mean, okay, you know, there was Lenny Bruce and this and that. But here was this really dark, um, yet funny film, Dr. Strangelove, I mean, that, that had taken, you know, this greatest anxiety of the Cold War and um, made it funny. Um, and, um, you know, we got to see it a couple of times. Um, so, uh, as an aside, um, there were two criticisms of Dr. Strangelove when it came out um, that always abused Stanley, and um, he, he, one of them he could never quite understand. I forget the guy's name, but the American Film Institute in those days published them, uh, a monthly film bulletin of reviews of the latest American cinema. And the, the guy whose name I've forgotten. Um, uh, hated Dr. Strangelove, but he had a strange phrase in, uh, that he concluded the review with. He said, and I quote, this film is sight gags for perverts. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Stanley thought that would make a great title for a movie. Um, you know, uh, with a certain guaranteed box office. Um, but we, we could never understand what this guy meant. I mean, you know, I mean, well, perhaps there was a few psychics, but you know, where did the perverts come from? You know? um, uh, perhaps a few years later, it could have been them psychics for preverts. <laughs> you, you know that illusion? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, the, the other review, I mean, the Dwyer of American film critics in those days was Bosley Crowther on the New York Times. He hated the film. I mean, he hated Stanley's films by and large. You know, in the same way that Time Out hated Stanley's films. Um, Time Out never liked Stanley. And um, Stanley used to say, um, you know, if you're writing a letter, particularly if you're criticizing somebody or, you know, you're making a complaint, just ask yourself, what would you look like if this... Um, Letter fell into the hands of Time Out. <laughs> Be careful. Anyway, Bosley Crowther hated the film, and his um, quote was uh, Moscow Gold couldn't buy better anti American propaganda than this film. 
which um, to him was a, uh, a bad thing. But I mean, if you think about it, it's a pretty good thing. I mean, it, it um, uh, for its criticism of, of the war machine in the States. Um, so um, anyway, so the name Stanley Kubrick meant something to me. So I thought, oh, well, I'd go down. My father drove me down on the Sunday morning. And this was um, September 1965, a week after my 17th birthday. And um, he drove me down to MGM and um, dumped me in an office. It was a big boardroom table. Um, and surrounding it was um, were all these um, bookshelves. Um, you know, the sort of thing that 50 years later you'd buy from Ikea. All around. And they were full of books. Uh, books on subjects like cosmology, astronomy, uh, UFOs, uh, and great sections on surrealism, Dardais, and futuristic, fantastic art, and so on, you know, Giacometti, and whatever. And I was looking at it, and Jesus, you know, I wouldn't mind working here just to be able to read these books. Um, and I took down from the shelf a book I'd only ever read about, Patrick Bullberg's book on Max Ernst. It was always one of my favorites. And I uh, thought, Jesus, you know, um, and I'm sitting down at the desk reading this Max Ernst book. You know, all these wonderful fold-outs of Ernst's paintings. And this guy walked through the office and sort of looked at me and, um, in a rather disheveled sort of sports jacket and baggy trousers and uh, an old pair of shoes. And um, I thought, he sort of looked at me and I thought, who the fuck are you? I thought perhaps he was a cleaner or somebody. And then we disappeared out. And, um, he came back um, a few minutes later and I sort of tentatively put his hand out and he said, are you Eddie's son? And uh, I said, yeah. And he said, I'm Stanley. Um, and he sat down opposite me on, on, on the table and he said, um, you're looking at Max Ernst's book? And I said, yeah. And I said, I know, I'm a big fan of Max Ernst. I mean, back in those days, I mean, Surrealism and Dadaism you couldn't give away in this country. I mean, nobody was interested. You know, it was only with the rise of sort of pop art and the rediscovery of those two isms that um, they were sort of taken aboard and appreciated for what they were. So anyway, Stanley said to me, listen, you know, I'm making this film and one of the problems I've got in it is um, coming up with ideas for futuristic or sort of science fiction and um, otherworldly landscapes. And he said, you know, um, who should I be looking at? I mean, what artists? Well, since I left school, you know, two years earlier, I mean, nobody had ever asked me anything. Not even the time, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I felt terribly flattered. And I said, well, you know, apart from Max Ernst, you know, Europe after the rain, he spoke, and, you know, I mentioned some other artists. And, um, and we got chatting, and um, we spoke about an hour and a half, um, here, there, and everywhere. So cosmology, um, did UFOs exist? I mean, what are the possibilities of extraterrestrial life and so on? And um, it was really quite something. And uh, he said, well, listen, you know, Ed has probably told you we, we need a, um, we need a runner on the picture. Um, um, would you like to come and work for us? I said, sure. I said, well, 
where should I begin? He said, how about 7 o'clock tomorrow morning? And I said, you've got a deal. And I turned up at 7 o'clock the next morning. He was already there. And, um, you know, I started off doing very rudimentary jobs. Well, I, I always did rudimentary jobs. Um, people often ask, what was the kind of hierarchical structure uh, working for Stanley? Well, to be honest, there wasn't. There was Stanley and the rest of us. Um, and, um, you know, some people might have had certain specialities, but it was Stanley. There was no tiers of middle management. Stanley was in control of everything. And um, uh, it, it wasn't always easy working for Stanley, but I mean, it was certainly always exhilarating, always challenging. And he had that sort of curiosity about the world that most people, you know, get knocked out of them as kids. You know, he was tremendously curious about this, that, and the other. And as Michael Hare says in his book, you know, I mean, you know, Stanley's mind was working so fast. Stanley had a great difficulty keeping up with himself. Um, and instead, I would recommend Michael Hare's book. I mean, if, if, has, has anyone here read it? <laughs> I know you would have read it. Um, well, well, you should read it. I mean, the next best thing to knowing Stanley is reading Michael's book. Um, and um, now I'll, I'll, I'll just um, give you uh, a couple of examples. Um, Stanley was always very good. I, I mean, he said to me one day, um, this was about a week after I started work, he said, listen, uh, somebody from MGM or wherever has sent me a script to read. He said, I haven't got time to read it. Um, can you read it and type up a critique and synopsis and whatever? And uh, I said, no, I can't, you know. Um, and why did I say no? Because a, I hadn't gone to university. B, I, um, I didn't sound posh like all those people on the, the third program, or Radio 3, as it's subsequently known, you know, discuss books. Um, and uh, it, it wasn't something I could do. You know, you really had to be trained to this. He said, listen, listen, listen hold on a second. Um, he said, can you read? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a given squad. Um, can you read? Yeah. He said, well, when you've read something, if somebody said to you, what's this book or this screenplay about, I mean, would you be able to tell them? And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, and if they then said to you, do you think this is a success? I mean, does it, is it, does it succeed on its own terms? Is it good, bad, indifferent, whatever? And I said, well, well, of course. And he said, well, you can type, can't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, what, what's the problem? And I, I had no answer to that. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, I sat down and read the script, typed up, you know, critiques, synopsis, and whatever. Um, but it was a good example of Stanley having uh, confidence and trust in people that they didn't have in themselves. Um, and what Keith, um, said about sort of being plucked from acting as John Jay. Uh, Winston Arthur was such an irritating guy. Well, I can't. And there you go. But um, he, he does think the same. <laughs> um, and um, uh, so, you know, Stanley plucks 
Keith out, and suddenly, you know, Keith's got a department, he's responsible for this, that, and the other, and he's doing things that he never thought he probably would. And Stanley was always very good at that. I mean, he could spot the face in the crowd and think, that's the guy who's got potential, and sort of pluck him out and overload him with responsibilities and jobs and um, the kind of thing, oh, Christ, you know, and then go ahead and do it. Um, so, I, if you look at, you know, Sony came over, I think it was in 1961, whenever it was to make the leader, um, it gave stacks and stacks of people a break and uh, encouraged stacks and stacks of people. Um, and did a tremendous amount for the British film industry and for the people who worked in it. Um, and uh, as I say, looking back on it, I mean, were it not for Stanley, I'm quite sure I can confidently say I'd now be in ice cream middle management. <laughs> Jan Harlan joined Stanley Kubrick in 1969, initially as producer on an intended feature film on the life of Napoleon Bonaparte, which had been a passion project of Stanley's for many years, but was ultimately, lamentably, abandoned. Mr. Harlan was later executive producer on all of Kubrick's films from Barry Lyndon onwards, and of course he worked with Stanley on many other unrealized projects in between. These days, Jan is a guest lecturer at many different film schools around the globe, and he often serves in juries at film competitions. He was principally involved in the formation of the Stanley Kubrick Archive at the University of the Arts in London, as well as his instrumental work in helping to create the large traveling exhibition on Stanley Kubrick, which continues to tour the world and has had well over a million visitors so far. Um, well, I merely suggested some music on this film. I, I did not work on the film. I shouldn't be sitting on this panel. I lived in Zurich at the time, and I visited regularly Boreham Wood, and I saw the sets. And anyway, I was in touch privately with Stanley, and we talked about music, and I suggested some music, and, and that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Colin, I believe you have something in the box. Oh, yeah, I've forgotten about that. <laughs> okay, I'm supposed to... I, um, it's only been touched once in the last 40 years. Um, this is an, an, an original skin from a mask from, from the AIDS. Um, Keith will... Will tell you, people got very, very hot in these suits. They got sweated into the masks, and we had a terrible problem of drying them out at night and sterilizing or just cleaning the whole thing. And I, like a mug, had the idea of using ozone, <laughs> and the ozone ozonators are put into public space places to clean them up so they smell fresh in the mornings. But ozone is the absolute enemy of foam latex. So we had clean masks, but after three or four weeks 
or through, uh, these masks would start to break up. So we used to have to take the skins off the mask and recover them, especially on the principal artists. So what you've got here is a 2001 ape mask. That's just the latex that goes over the mechanical mask. Uh, there is um, one like, well, this say, never been touched, never been uh, passed over, work, worked on, and that is an, an, original, an original skin. Would you like this to go into the uh, traveling exhibition on Stanley Kubrick? Yes. We have now 1.3 million visitors, and the exhibition goes next to Barcelona and next year to London at the uh, London Design Museum. And this is a genuine article, so it could go into the uh, exhibition. Okay. Oh, as a loan from you. Yes, okay. Is that a good idea? Yes, sir. Let's be in touch. Okay. Right. Oh, anyway, I'd br bring it up closer yes. to anybody. Yeah. A bit slow there, Colin. Very cool. Hey, we're going to continue this presentation with one more installment of Nathan Abrams' event 2001 Beyond 50 in the next episode of Kubrick's Universe. Thanks once again to Nathan for allowing us to broadcast this special event and to all of the speakers in this episode. Once again, my deepest thanks to our producer and editor, Stephen Rigg, as well as our amazing research team, James Marinaccio and Mark Lentz. Thanks also to James for selecting this episode's outro music, which comes from Victor Malloy and is called Kubrick 2001. This piece of music is taken from Victor's album, The Musings of Monsieur Malloy, released in 2001. Coincidence? Read the book. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for tuning in once again, everyone. This is your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, signing off and saying in my best impression of Ms. Evie Rigg, Come back soon.
and he's traveling. I'm sorry about it, but I just can't. I can send you a very nice present, though. Anything special that you want? What? Lots of telephones already. Did you think of anything else you want for your birthday? Something very special? Yes. What? A bush baby. Bush baby? Oh, we'll have to see about that. Listen, sweetheart, I want you to tell Mommy something for me. Will you remember? Yeah. Tell Mommy that I telephone, okay? Yes. And I'll try to telephone again tomorrow. And will you tell her that? Okay, sweetheart. Have a nice birthday tomorrow. Have a nice birthday party tomorrow, too, huh? Okay, now take care and be a good girl, won't you? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Happy birthday. Well, how is Gregor? Oh, he's fine. He's been doing some underwater research in the Baltic, so... Uh... I'm afraid we don't get a chance to see very much of each other these days. <laughs> well, when you do see, I'm sure to give my regards. Yes, of course. Well, where are you all off to? Up or down? We're going home. We've uh, just spent three months calibrating the new antenna, Chilenka. What about you? I'm just on my way up to Clavius. But I hope you don't think I'm being too inquisitive, but perhaps you can clear up the great mystery about what has been going on up there. I'm afraid I don't know what you mean. Well, it's just that for the past two weeks, some extremely odd things have been happening in the clinics. Oh, really? Yes, yes. Well, for one thing, whenever you phone the base, all you can get is a recording which repeats that the phone lines are temporarily out of order. Having some trouble with their equipment or something like that. Yes. Yes, that's what we thought was the explanation at first, but it's been going on now for the past ten days. You mean you haven't been able to contact anyone for the past ten days? That's right. Oh, I see. Well, there's another thing, Haywood. Two days ago, one of our rocket buses was denied permission for emergency landing at Clavius. Well, that does sound odd. Yes, yes. yes I'm afraid there's going to be a bit of a row about it. Denying the men permission to land is a direct violation of the IAS convention. Yes, of course, of course. Will the crew get back all right? Yes, yes, fortunately they did. Oh, I'm glad about that. Dr. Floyd, at the risk of pressing you on a point you seem reticent to discuss, may I ask you a straightforward question? What, certainly. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon.